0: So today I want to talk about good practices for research collections and biobanks. My name is Dr. Jane Kaye, I'm Director of the Centre for Health, Law and Emerging Technologies at the University of Oxford, um, otherwise known as HELEX and um, I'm going to structure this talk, please change slide so that I actually talk about the current trends that are happening in medical research that are leading to the establishment of these collections as well as biobanks and then I'm going to focus on four key issues the first one being consent, the second one being withdrawal and the third being feedback and the fourth being governance structures and what should we have as good practice in relation to these four key issues. Change slide. So as you can see, that is a picture of a fridge. And what we are finding in medical research practice is that a lot of the tissue collections that may have been stored in a uh, fridge or the bottom of a freezer are taking on a new value. And they can be used for new research projects return. In addition, we're seeing um, the creation of new biobanks where new samples are being collected and they are being collected alongside medical information. New slide. So we're seeing a, a greater importance being placed on data and how information is being used. And in particular, in the case of genomics, with the move to a whole sequence generation, we are seeing that um, information is becoming more important, and at times is even more important than the sample itself. New slide. So with a click of a mouse, researchers are now able to access a number of data collections. And particularly in genomics, we have seen the establishment of large sequence collections, such as were generated through the Human Genome Project, the development of the HapMap Project and the New Thousand Genomes Project. So that there is a lot of genome sequence information that is now available on the web. As well as that, we are seeing that um, researchers have collections in their own countries or um, which have been amassed as part of projects, which also can be accessed through the web. New slide. So what is happening is that there are networks within networks of researchers. So people may have access to information across the globe and they may share that with researchers working in their own disease area, or they may share information with people who may be doing related approaches to thinking about diseases such as using genomics to understand how one gene may have implications for a number of conditions. New slide. But this raises issues about privacy and how we should protect this very sensitive medical information and what structures we should have in place to safeguard research participants, but also what is best practice in this new and emerging field. New slide. So we must be thinking about these structures at a global level, not just be thinking about them in terms of what we do within our own research project, but also thinking about this in terms of global governance. Currently we don't have the legal or regulatory frameworks in place to regulate this activity at a global level. Much of our regulatory systems are nationally based and while we have general law at an international level, we do not have legal instruments that actually apply to biobanks and research collections at an international level. Although we've just seen the introduction of the OEC guidelines on human biobanks and repositories which came out in November 2009 that actually start to lay out some of the principles that might apply to biobanks. And there's the possibility that this could actually be transformed into legally binding instruments that could be developed either at a European level or an international level. But currently, the situation is that we actually have national regulation to regulate this global activity. New slide. So that means that for many researchers who are setting up biobanks they are having to reinvent the wheel. That they're trying to develop new systems that are relevant for their national jurisdictions and they may find that they run into a number of difficulties about what or how to develop good practice in this area. We're also finding that there are more and more plans to integrate existing biobanks and as I said to develop this idea of networks within networks or a hub and spokes approach at a national level and the intention is to actually move towards um, European infrastructure for biobanking of repositories. And there are organisations such as P3G which are aiming to harmonise standards um, for greater sharing of information um, that are held in repositories and biobanks. New slide. So I want to move now to one of the key issues that are kind of challenged by the trends that are happening in medical research practice. So if we turn to informed consent, new slide. Informed consent requirements have been laid out in the Declaration of Helsinki. And this requires that individuals must be informed of the overall plan of research, the possible risks and benefits of the research project. And they must be asked to consent to participate in a research project before the project actually commences. They should be specifically informed according to the nature and purpose of the research and they must be informed of the extent and duration of the procedures involved, in particular details of any burden imposed by the research project. So these requirements have come to inform research governance practice and requirements that research ethics committees will stipulate before they actually approve a research project. Change of slide. There are a number of difficulties raised by trying to use this notion of informed consent within biobanks and thinking about these networks within networks. First of all, the outline of informed consent as articulated in the Declaration of Helsinki is designed for physical harm and one project research rather than these networks within networks where the project and um, where, where data is actually mined and the emphasis is not on one project in particular. The other difficulty is that informed consent is required at the beginning of the research process and under the Declaration of Helsinki all the details of the research must be specified at the time of collection. and This is very difficult to do if you're talking about a repository which is designed for many research uses that may change over time and it is designed to ask many kinds of different questions that may not necessarily be hypothesis driven. There may just be the possibility of mining different data sets to see the associations that occur by combining different variations or different points in the data. So it's very difficult to inform research participants at the time of collection of all the research uses and who will use it and this is particularly so when data is shared and technology is changing. So it's very difficult to anticipate all the informational risks that may occur. New slide. So in the UK a generic approval system has been developed. So now certain research ethics committees may now grant generic approval to research tissue banks and this is under the NRES Standard Operating Procedures for RECS which was developed in 2006. This permits a range of research to be carried out within the conditions of the ethical approval and individuals do not need to seek any further project specific research ethics committee approval. In order to get generic approval of this kind A research tissue bank must need various conditions. First of all, they must have human tissue um, authority approval to operate, which requires having a licence. And secondly, they must ensure that samples are anonymized. And in this case, that usually means that um, identifiers are removed, personal identifiers such as name and addresses are removed. New slide. In addition, we've seen exceptions created for personal information. So under the National Information Governance Board for Health and Social Care, we have found that they now have responsibility for actually allowing the supply of patient information, including identifiable information, without consent in limited circumstances. This board actually replaces PIAG, the Patient Information Advisory Group, and the powers for this body are under the National Health Service Act 2006, section 251 to 252. This, these sections mean that the common law of duty of confidentiality can be set aside in specific circumstances for medical research purposes, such as where it is impractical to obtain consent and where anonymised data will not suffice for certain medical purposes in the public interest. So this allows medical information to be used without consent if it can be established that um, it's not appropriate to use anonymised information and that this is for certain medical purposes in the public interest. New slide. So what should good practice be for biobanks when we're thinking about consent? First of all, I think it's necessary to tell people all that you can at the time of collection about the research planned. Secondly, if a broad consent is sought for the use of data for unforeseen research by unknown researchers in the future, then this must be followed up with a consent to ask a research committee to make decisions on behalf of the individual. So if you are asking for a broad consent for inclusion in a biobank that's going to be accessed by Many people well into the future, then individuals should be asked whether this is acceptable for them and whether they are prepared for a research ethics committee or another appropriate body to give consent on their behalf. So, this is what I'm calling consent for governance. New slide. Let's now turn to withdrawal because withdrawal becomes increasingly difficult. Um, when we're thinking about networks within networks and repositories of data and information that is accessible by a number of researchers. The basic principle in medical research ethics is that research participants should be able to withdraw from research at any time. But this is increasingly difficult. First of all, if we think about tiny samples that are spread across networks that span the globe, and also these may be accompanied by data that is used in multiple research projects. It's very difficult to actually promise withdrawal. Also, there is a need to have archived data sets, and this means that data sets need to be continually backed up in order um, to be viable. So what is good practice? In this regard, if we've got these challenges to the basic principle that individual research participants should be able to withdraw from research at any time. New slide. Some would say it's a bit like the saying or the song, at the Hotel California. you can check out but you can never leave. And I think we should be taking this approach because it's very difficult to promise, complete withdrawal to research participants anymore. All we can promise is that um, they will be discontinued from a research project. We cannot withdraw all their samples and information if it's flung over a global network. But we can say that your sample and data won't be used again, or from this point on. Let's turn to feedback. Feedback is a contentious issue and it's been a perennial issue that continues to come up in medical research. We are moving to a position where it's increasingly difficult to make information anonymous, particularly if we're talking about the use of whole genome sequence data, which is identifiable to the individual and the possibility that this could be used by many different people when it is placed in a repository where it can be shared but also we're having data sharing that involves projects and different consortia that spans the globe. This increased amount of information on individual also increases the likelihood of identifying serious treatable conditions and incidental findings particularly in the case of whole genome sequences where you're looking at the whole genome so you may actually be able to identify whether somebody has a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation you may be able to identify variations in their genome which may increase the likelihood of them developing a particular condition. So what should be the situation? What what should we do in situations such as these? Is there an obligation to feedback? New slide. So what should good practice be? I think that What we should be doing is have websites to inform individuals and newsletters so that they're aware of how their information and samples are being used and what the outcomes of the research are. We must also establish management pathways for serious treatable conditions and incidental findings. It's very important that even if a decision is made not to feedback, that researchers are aware of what they should do if there is a serious treatable condition. And I think that it's very important that these issues and the procedures for dealing with such an eventuality should be carefully thought out before the research begins. slide. The fourth issue that I want to talk about are governance structures and the way that they have been seriously challenged by global research networks and this move towards sharing at an international level. Governance structures are necessary to ensure that there's accountable, transparent decision making, to ensure that research is ethical and lawful, and to provide mechanisms where people can act on behalf of research participants if necessary. We need to have frameworks to ensure that the ethical, legal and social issues can be addressed over time, and this can be done through a governance system that allows memorandums of understanding to be developed between participants in a project, but also can make decisions that have implications for the project as a whole, but also for individual participants. New slide. So what should be good practice? First of all, we need bodies that can make policy as well as make decisions. These could be advisory bodies, management structures, and could involve research participants. We need to make sure that governance structures are appropriate and do not duplicate existing governance structures. But it's very important that they are in place right at the beginning of the research project. New slide. So in conclusion, this development of global sharing of information and data and having biobanks and research collections that are open to other researchers and can be used for multiple research projects raises a number of challenges in terms of our ethical, legal and social understanding of medical research. This talk has focused on four key areas which I think are a challenge by these new trends in medical research. And I have given some indication of the way that I think good practice should be developing. Thank you very much.